Hi, we're Cardigan Academy, your helpers for all things parenting, mental health, and education. I'm Devani. And I'm Stacy. And today we're sharing Violet's story. I've been looking forward to this episode to hear you share this as I know we're coming up on the dates that are especially significant about this. Yeah, this will this one will be published on November 4th and she was born on November 2nd and it's 10 years this year. I don't know, it feels significant in a way because it's been 10 years without her, but it's also been 10 years of growth for me and our family. Yeah. 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 So I always love to talk and write about her, especially in the beginning. I think I started writing during her pregnancy to keep people up to date. So I wouldn't have to keep repeating it over and over again. And then after I said to very dear friends of mine, I had already started my website, Still Playing School, where I was writing about Um, educational activities I was doing with our older daughter who was almost two at the time and I'll never forget Jamie and Lisa came over and I said I'm feeling this huge desire to continue to write about Violet the way I did on Caring Bridge the website when I was pregnant continue to write about grief but it feels weird like does that fit in with still playing school and Lisa said you're still educating people it's just a different type of education and I want to hear all parts of that. And Mm. she's like, you know, I read for you. So I want to read about all of your kids. And, And it just has totally turned into that over the past 10 years. I mean, I even see Cardigan Academy principals in that conversation that Lisa had with me 10 years ago as well. And I don't know, I guess I just needed that permission to blend things in a way that felt right. And I'm so, I'm so glad I did because... There's been times where I felt like if I didn't write or speak of her, I would explode. Yeah. And sometimes people would reach out and say, oh, you know, your writing helps me so much too. And I, in the early days, it was almost like I forgot there was someone on the other side of the computer. I mean, it was, it was incredibly healing to see that people were reading. Mm-hmm. That was beautiful because even on days where no one was saying her name, someone was reading her story. But I also was writing from such a need to get it out therapeutically that sometimes when someone would say back, like, oh, that really, that really meant a lot. It felt very self-indulgent and it wasn't. And so, yeah, I feel like this episode is a continuation of that in a new light that I see it in 10 years later that the people do care and that it does yeah. help others. And through a new medium and a new way of telling the story, like you did it in writing before and connected with people there and now you're doing this with that 10 years of perspective and connecting with people and I think you and I both process a lot by writing yeah I definitely do and I know you do too I I just when I when my dad was dying and when he died and I was processing that grief and I wrote about it on our family blog I 
I actually made some friends I'm still friends with to this day, um, including a woman in Vancouver, Canada, <laughs> whose dad was diagnosed with and dying of Parkinson's disease. And she also had a really good relationship with her dad and loved him very much. And she said reading what I wrote was hard, but also helpful. And I never would have expected that kind of a connection, yeah. you know, and we became friends. So, yeah, I know what you mean. I see that in Cardigan Academy because we both had that experience of the internet at our fingertips in a time of great pain and making connections that even though it was on the other side of a keyboard and a computer, people nodding and understanding. And now we're recreating that type of community through Cardigan Academy too. Doesn't matter where you live, you can get together with us and find other people who are going through whatever the thing is that you've gone through or that you are experiencing we are trying to foster that community, which we get the importance of that because we've lived it. Yeah. And it's such a part of trauma, of grief, of healing, that community aspect. I think about something one of our clients said in one of our cloops one time, our healing from your toxic childhood cloop. She said, people who are alcoholics go to AA on a regular basis and those meetings help them sort of stay on track. And she said, and this is what it's like for me to come here for doing my healing in this area. And I thought, wow, mm -hmm. that was so insightful, but we do heal in community. There's something very affirming of hearing someone say me too, or who has gone through, even, even when it's a, not a great reason mm -hmm. and it's sad, it's not that you're glad they went through it because no one is. It's just knowing that someone else gets it. Yeah, it was important for me to know that other mothers had survived this. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you know that that is the case. And also I needed to hear that because sitting in the waiting room of my OBGYN on the outside, I looked like just like every other pregnant mom that was there. But if there was a baby in a car seat next to me, I couldn't even bear to look because I knew in several months that was not what our experience was going to be. Yeah. And I also want to thank you for um, connecting me to the woman who started our memoir writing group because I have been writing Violet's memoir little bit by little bit. We meet every two weeks and we read something and it's this beautiful group of women who are all have faced similar gr grief through their life and aren't afraid to write in a vulnerable way. And we listen with our hearts. And I don't know, as much as writing has been a huge way for me to process and heal through losing Violet, it's also very hard work. Yeah. And I don't know if I didn't have a commitment to show up every two weeks, I think I would still be putting off writing it as an entire story. That's been a really amazing experience 10 years out to process it now anew, being forced to write it again and write it in a different way and write it from the perspective of 10 years out, what it has looked like for us as a family. And this feels like a part of that too. So I appreciate this opportunity. I appreciate you sharing it with us. It's, it reminds me of something um, our family has done National Novel Writing Month just, just about every year since 2009. And the concept is a crazy one, but you write 50,000 words in 30 days. And one of the things that the guy who started this said, and it's always stuck with me, he talks about how a lot of people have a story that they want to write. And a lot of people wait until they're retired or mm -hmm. empty nesters to write the story. 
And he has this thing he says, which is the story that you have to write when you're 20 is different than the story you have to write when you're 40, which is different than the story you have to write when you're 70. And part of him setting up National Novel Writing Month is it, it forces you to not wait. It's mm. just, it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be amazing. Just get it on paper, get it out there because the story you have now is different than the story you'll have later. So I'm glad you're writing it now with that perspective because if you waited 20 years and maybe you'll do it again maybe you'll write again in 20 years but it'll it'll be different then too yeah I guess I think about I might not be here to write it in 10 years yeah yeah even if nothing ever comes of it with the publisher I want my kids to have this not that we don't talk about their sister almost every day because we do but I want them to have the reflection of what this was like for us mm-hmm and what a gift. I, I always say like, when it comes to things like pictures and writing, you never talk to someone who says, I wish I had less. Yeah. <laughs> no one ever thinks that. They always say, I wish I knew more. I wish I could ask more questions. Yes. I wish I had more pictures. And so. Right. And we felt that too, during her, her brief life. I had read a lot about what other mothers through the beauty of the internet and the connection there, what what do you wish you would have done? And so you try to, I tried to research it, that's what I do, and then make sure that we would have as little regrets on things that we wish we would have had as possible. So we do, fortunately, have a lot of pictures from those two days, but I'll back up and I'll, I'll start in July of 2011, when I was 22 weeks pregnant, um, my daughter Evelyn was a year and a half old, and we thought we were just going for the regular anatomy scan. Now, now knowing, I mean, you call it an anatomy scan. Everyone thinks you're just finding out if you're having a boy or a girl. But the anatomy scan for, was for the exact reason of what we found out that day, which, well, not that day. That day we found out she was a girl, and then we had a midwife appointment immediately after. And at that appointment, they said... They're seeing some things on the ultrasound that they would like you to come back and have a scan with maternal fetal medicine to take another look at. And at first, I mean, I was just, I was on cloud nine that we were having another girl. I, I was already imagining Evelyn and Violet in each other's weddings. And, and I also had the experience of the same thing had happened during our pregnancy with Evelyn. There was something they had seen in her heart. We went to maternal fetal medicine. It turned out to be nothing. She's perfectly healthy. So at first, I wasn't really thinking a lot about it. And then we went and picked up Evelyn. My mother-in-law was watching her and we were driving home and I called my family, my mom that lives on the other side of the state, to tell them they were having another granddaughter. And for some reason on that phone call, I started crying and I said, I just want to have a stress-free pregnancy because my first pregnancy was a miscarriage. And then Evelyn's pregnancy, you know, I was terrified of having another miscarriage. And then they saw something on her heart, which turned out to be nothing. And now here we were again with like just stress. Yeah. And then we came home and Rob went back to work and Evelyn went down for a nap. And I started Googling the things that they had told us they saw on the ultrasound. And what I didn't know was Rob was doing the same thing at work. And so I messaged him and said, I'm not finding stories like we did when we were pregnant with Evelyn where someone sees this and it turns out to be nothing. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm not either. 
And then the phone rang and maternal fetal medicine was getting us in like the following week. Like it was the end of the week, maybe a Thursday for this ultrasound. And then they were getting us in on Monday. So then we're starting to put the pieces together. Like whatever they saw is serious. And we named her that weekend. I remember feeling like it was difficult to, I don't, I always feel like it's, it's a weird when you're pregnant and you know this baby, but you don't. Mm-hmm. You experience that? Yeah. You, you're already connected. You're bonded. And yet you haven't met them, but you know them. Yeah. 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 So knowing she was a girl was the next step in that. And I felt like giving her a name was a step even further in that direction. And yet now we were learning something was probably wrong. I hate to use that word, but something was, they were seeing things on the ultrasound. I just, I remember a lot of emotions that weekend. I remember starting to like search for girl nursery decor and then like even having something in the back of my head, like, don't get ahead of yourself. But we chose the name Violet, which has ended up being perfect. And, and then we returned to maternal fetal medicine the following week. And when I laid down and all my information came up on the screen, not only did I see the things that they had told us that they saw the week before, but there was even more. And the point of this visit was basically to go over all those things with a maternal fetal medicine doctor and to get an amniocentesis, which we did. And then they told us it would be two or three days we'd have results. And they told us several things it could be. They were thinking it was either, it, was, it wasn't Down syndrome. They knew it was more severe than that. They said it was either trisomy 18, trisomy 13, or something called DeGeorge syndrome. Mm-hmm. So all like chromosome-related um, abnormalities. And, you know, so we had those couple of days to like research those. And sometimes you have something called mosaic trisomy, which means not every cell in your body has that three replica on that chromosome. The people that have trisomy 13 and 18 that live longer, sometimes they're, they are the mosaic type. And we knew at this point that we were either committed to a lifetime of raising a handicapped child, a severely handicapped child, or we knew that um, death was a possibility too. And then when they finally called, and I'll get, I get into all this a lot more in the memoir, Um, But when they finally called and said trisomy 13 and it wasn't mosaic, then everything started happening really fast. Um, We were meeting with the, we decided to stay at the same hospital we're at, but they don't have a huge NICU there. But first we had to decide whether or not to continue with the pregnancy, which Mm -hmm. will always be an issue so near and dear to my heart now because I always believed in women's choice and now even more so because I often say Yes, we decided to carry to term. And also, if we didn't have all of the privilege that we do have, I don't, I would never take that choice away from someone else. Yeah. And so while I am so glad that we got two days with Violet, I would never, I, I know, I know a lot of mothers who ch- chose to end the pregnancy. And I feel like that is just as honorable and loving and humane a decision as what we decided. So then July to November, we knew that she could pass any time in utero, or if she was born alive, she could be born early. She would probably be born small. If she was born alive, we would probably get minutes, maybe hours. Oh, wow. 
we also got way too much information about everything that was quote unquote wrong. What was affected? Her, her brain, her heart. She, a lot of, it was trisomy 13 and a lot of trisomy 13 babies have facial abnormalities like a cleft palate, Mm -hmm. cleft lip. And she did not appear to have any of that via the ultrasound and, and she didn't. But from what they could tell, there were going to be, you know, severe issues with a lot of these vital organs. Mm-hmm. And I have a one and a half year old at home. So I don't know. It just, it was just, I'm in the memoir writing right now, I'm writing about the pregnancy and I'm having a very difficult time. I find myself wanting to hurry up and get to the point where she's born mm-hmm. and I can tell you about her. Mm-hmm. And part of what I think is so hard about writing the pregnancy is exactly what was difficult about that pregnancy, which was I wanted to hurry up and yet I knew what hurrying up brought the beginning of the end. And it was this complicated limbo of grief of meeting with a funeral home and she's kicking in my belly or picking out an urn, like, and not even knowing prior to this, that this was a possibility. Like I truly thought if you don't have a miscarriage, if you get to the anatomy scan, you're bringing home a baby. And I have learned since then how prevalent stillbirth is still and all the things that that can happen that allow babies to be born alive or to at least be further along in the pregnancy so that it is, it's a, you know, it's a delivery. I mean, even 12, 14, 16 weeks miscarriage, you're, you're delivering a baby. I think people forget that. That was something that was not clear to me. Not, it's not, it's not the way we talk about it in our culture. And I was strangely, my first pregnancy, I had a miscarriage and I was strangely prepared for the, not prepared. I knew there would be emotional pain. I did not know how physically painful it would be because no one talked about that, you know? And I was very focused on the loss. This was a a wanted pregnancy. And so then when you are, when I was having, you're right. It is like, honestly, now that I've given birth twice since then, I had contractions. Mm -hmm. That's what it was. I was in a, I was in so much pain and it's physical pain compounded by emotional pain and it's all tied in together, but you're, you're right. It's, it's a delivery. You're right. And there's even, we'll do an episode eventually more broadly on pregnancy loss, but it's even the fact that you want this baby and, Mm -hmm. and yet you know that they're not going to survive. So, you know, at some point, you know, it's coming and you don't want to do it, but it's in your body and it's inevitable. And you know, it's going to be just a huge loss. I had that a little bit when my dad was dying. He had Parkinson's, he was in hospice at home. And as it got closer, as he lost the ability to speak, to swallow, to eat, to anything really. Um, and they told us, you know, and then the organs shut down. They, they prepare you for it. Although there's never enough preparation for something like that. I found myself with that push pull that you're talking about like Mm -hmm. we were waiting for him to die and yet wanting to hold on to him but not wanting him to be suffering yeah it's such a complex it's it's just such a complicated thing that's going on because you feel weird 
waiting and in a sense, hoping for yes. that leaf, right? It's, it's just guilt related to that. Then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, the weeks and months trickled by and we continued to have scans and she continued to grow and we even knew she was going to have hair. <laughs> and we bought a couple preemie outfits because we were told, you know, she would be small and how much did she weigh? She weighed four pounds, 11 ounces. Was I she believe. early then? So Evelyn had been a C-section and I had a doctor tell me there's no reason for you to have a C-section with this baby because she's going to die anyway. Like basically don't put your body at the recovery risk of a C-section. But I had also read that a lot of these medically fragile babies die during labor. And so oh. I was basically like, no. If this were a healthy pregnancy, I would be asking for a repeat scheduled C-section and I am getting it with Violet as well. Mm. You know, I wanted to say two more words to him, but um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, and then um, so so we scheduled the C-section for 37 weeks and my I quit seeing a midwife and I switched to the most wonderful OBGYN. She was wonderful through writing the memoir, I've realized if I had a doctor that I didn't feel that close to, the C-section, the act of knowing someone was going to cut me open and remove a baby that would begin to start dying at that moment would have felt like such a violation. Mm -hmm. And it didn't with Dr. Wise. It felt like she was just a part of this and she understood how sacred this was. And she's one of many people that I would never be able to to put into words exactly how much she meant to us. Yeah. So we had the C-section planned for 37 weeks. And at first they called and said, you know, her birthday is going to be November 3rd. And I hung up the phone and did feel like, okay, well, that's her birthday. But that's also the beginning of the clock ticking. Mm -hmm. Because as long as she was inside me, even though she could have died based on her diagnosis at any time, she was getting oxygen through my heart and lungs, oxygenating blood through the umbilical cord to her. So as soon as her heart with a heart defects had to take over, we knew we didn't know how long. We didn't know if she would cry. We didn't know if she was going to be able to eat. And I still don't know how we walked out of the house that day, knowing what we were walking into. I want to go back in time and like, hug me and my husband (laughs) so i i went in on the early morning of november 2nd and i should have looked i believe she was born at 904 i get the times mixed up with all of my kids does that happen to you yeah yeah their their weights are similar and the times are even similar like i'm thinking i'd have to go check but just like two hour difference but the minutes were the same yeah Yeah. (laughs) And so she did. She cried. She sounded like a little kitten mewing. And Rob went over just like, you know, just like you would during a healthy pregnancy. I'm still on the operating table and they're finishing everything up with me. And he went over with her and, and then they brought her over. And what I often tell mothers with a fatal prenatal diagnosis is that I wish I could go back in time and tell myself that every emotion I experienced was valid. And also 
I wish I could have reminded myself that you're going to love this baby as fiercely as as any of your children and and that that's all still going to happen and come and mm-hmm. she was just she was perfect like <laughs> there were so many things not perfect but she was perfect so we had um we had family waiting at the hospital you know we didn't know how long we would have but i always say something happened when violet was born like this peace and calm settled around us that she brought something with her that was just a very mm-hmm. powerful energy, calm. Like I no longer felt like this urgency to tell her all the things and do all the, like, I just felt like, well, there she is. Mm. And, and we still knew that our time was limited, but I, I was able to relax in a way that is very uncharacteristic. And so that was really amazing. Especially given the situation. Yeah. Yeah. She met Evelyn first and Rob was able to give her a bath. And it was funny because that morning on the way out the door, I grabbed one pair of Evelyn's pajamas because I thought she's not going to get to wear hand-me-downs her whole life. And she didn't fit into the preemie pajamas we had brought with us. She fit into the pajamas that were Evelyn's. So it was just perfect. She was too tall. She was tiny, but she was, all of my kids have been very long and they were pajamas with the little feet in them. So when we tried to put the preemie ones on, she didn't fit. And so she got to wear Evelyn's hand-me-down pajamas. And mm. a lot of my family got to meet her. And Rob's family got to meet her. And I had a friend who had also experienced a lot of loss. And she was taking pictures. And we also had someone from Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, which is a foundation that takes pictures of babies after they pass. So we had two photographers. <laughs> and family and she was she was crying her her color looked good i was trying to nurse she was very she we tried our best and then i was spending a lot of time pumping then because you know the longer she lived the more it was like okay now at every turn we have to make a decision like she's trying to nurse but she doesn't seem like she has the strength to do so so then we're going to pump and try to feed her the colostrum and we did end up syringe feeding her formula eventually over those two days because she we didn't we didn't do a feeding tube we didn't do any breathing assistance when did you have to make those decisions beforehand or at the time somewhat um i had a NICU doctor tell me not to get too ahead of myself with all the if she struggles with it like we kind of had like an umbrella we're not going to take any extreme measures so Mm -hmm. my birth plan said things like low by oxygen but not oh i don't know i don't know that term we didn't want her to ever have to be intubated oh okay but then of course all of that is kind of like you have an idea and then you're you're making the decisions as you go as well i mean she she did really well for two days we got a lot of pictures and i was just i mean over the moon every hour we got was like i didn't sleep a lot i had one nurse I think it was the second night. So she was born on a Wednesday. Thursday night, I had a nurse that came in and shared a story with me about how she had lost an infant son. And you know that they say not to share things like that when you're in the medical field, don't. Mm -hmm. I remember those. I remember the people that cried with us. And I remember this woman because I was able to give Violet to her for a couple hours and I knew that if there was any 
peep from her as she was making her rounds, she would bring her right back to me because she understood, like she truly understood. And I don't know that I would have gotten any sleep during those 48 hours if that weren't the case. Yeah, because you didn't know how long you would have. Right? So it's not like you can stay awake endlessly or it's not like you knew it would be 48 hours and you could stay awake for them. You had right. no idea. Yeah. Right. And then we started interviewing hospice because now we're getting to the point that we're potentially getting released from the hospital. And do you want hospice in your home? Do you want to put her into a facility? I remember them giving us a special car seat because she wasn't going to be able to go home in the typical car seat. Mm -hmm. And I also remember holding her and talking to, I think it was the second hospice company we had considered and we're talking about all these things and I'll I'll never forget having this vivid thought of looking down at her and thinking I don't want to be wasting my time talking to these people I want to be spending time with her but there were still decisions that needed to be made and um, and then that was the day that was Friday morning and that day she started to go downhill we had friends visiting and one of them was holding her and she stopped breathing so we cleared everyone out of the room and and thought, you know, okay, this is it. And and then she started breathing again. And then it was just Rob and I the next time she stopped breathing. And, you know, we were telling her that it was okay to go. And then she started breathing again. So then I'm like, okay, this is even more of that mm. back and forth. Yeah. If we take her home tomorrow and this continues, we're not going to get any sleep at home. How are we going to pay attention to Evelyn? Like, how are we going to do anything? How's Rob going to go to work? How do, I mean, I know people do it, but this is what was going through my mind. And then that night she had her, she had her last one and Evelyn was there. My mother and sister-in-law were there. They had brought Evelyn back. And I, I always say, I think she just wanted to see Evelyn one more time. Oh. And then when she stopped breathing that time, uh, my in-laws took Evelyn home and, and that was the time she passed. And then we had a lot of things prepared. We wanted to do, you know, hand prints and footprints and just spend some time with her still. I mean, we were fortunate that we got two days. And also, if she hadn't been born alive, I still would have spent time with... There's a whole nother conversation here about, as a society, how we are quick to call someone and take away a body and mm -hmm. that spending time with the body is also part of the grieving process. So the funeral home came at like midnight and they took her in that special car seat that we thought we would be taking her home in. And Rob and I just each gave her a kiss on each of her cheeks and pulled the blanket up and none of that was planned, but just seemed perfect. And then they took her and we had already made arrangements that she would be cremated. I didn't sleep at all that night. Were you still in the hospital at this point or were you, yeah. you were still- you We would as have been released the next day. Okay. So she was either going to inpatient hospice or home. Mm -hmm. And regardless, like I was going to be released the next day, which was fine then. Mm -hmm. But then because I had been pumping for two days and my milk came in and that was a whole nother thing to grieve. Oh. I was up all night. Rob fell asleep. Part of it was hard. And another thing I will always tell people that are in these situations professionally is the medical staff at the hospital, I'm sure they thought they were giving us space that night. But you know, when you're in the hospital, they're checking your blood pressure and you're giving you medications. And they're in and out all the time. And they, they, 
they didn't do that that night. And I remember feeling very abandoned. And again, I know they were probably trying to respect our privacy and our grief, but Rob was sleeping and I, that was a really hard night. And then we were released from the hospital and it was several days before we got her ashes back. We chose not to have a memorial service or a funeral because I had been making so many decisions at that point that I couldn't possibly think about planning something else. I mean, I wrote her obituary and that was about all I had left in me. Mm-hmm. And I remember being very desperate to get her ashes back when Rob went and picked them up. They were back in our home. That felt better. And then the grief began. I always say like, of course, of course, it was incredible grief. But those months of being pregnant before, it was something about that being even harder in a way. Because now I I had resources. I knew I was reading a lot about how to grieve well. If I was going to do anything right in my life, I was going to grieve her well. And so then I was able to start the process of that. Well, when you were pregnant, you didn't know what would happen. You didn't know. It was so open-ended. It seems like as difficult as it absolutely must have been that there was at least that unknown part was now known. Yes. And it was, she was perfect. We had love for her and the timing. I mean, of course I wanted her forever, right? Just like you want all of your kids. But if looking back, I feel like that was the perfect scenario because like I said, if we had brought her home as much as I wanted her to be in this house with us, I think that would have been a whole new thing to navigate as far as, and you do what you have to do. And I know we would have just like we did with everything else, but we were very grateful for two and a half days and all the pictures and videos and the clothes she got to wear and hand and footprints that we have. And I remember people saying that four to six months out is really hard. Now, remember this was the beginning of November. So we had my birthday a week later, happy birthday. (laughs) We had Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. Evelyn's birthday is in Mm -hmm. there too, right? Yeah. 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 And so I do remember the New Year feeling again like a new stage of this. Evelyn would go down for a nap and I would look at Violet's pictures and cry the entire time that Evelyn was napping. And then it was like when I would hear her on the monitor, not that she didn't ever see me cry, but it, it like I forced myself to get it together and make sure we were both dressed and fed at least every day. And I look back on pictures and videos and I see she did have, she still, she was very well taken care of, but there was a lot of times both during the pregnancy and then in that grieving early days of grief that I couldn't tell you what we did. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's survival. It's grief mm-hmm. survival and grief fog. And as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about all the different things people say when it comes to, birth and death and grief there's all these you know don't tell anyone you're pregnant for 12 weeks Mm. and the first year of grieving is so hard i remember a year after my dad died when we passed that anniversary thinking oh okay oh like it gets easier now and then my husband and i were watching i think it was like an episode of scrubs and it was one of the heavier sadder episodes and it was extremely triggering and i could feel mark next to me like uncomfortable that we were watching the episode Mm. that we were watching because it hit so close to home and I was crying and I remember thinking 
why is it hurting so much? It's been longer than a year. So I almost kind of hate those yeah. rules of thumb because grief, I, the, the saying I've now adopted and that I say to people is grief has no timeline mm -hmm. because when you act like it does or that there are these certain times and everyone experiences it differently, it's just, it's like an expectation that we've put on a process that is completely different for everyone. I, I just, you can't even really, I mean, you can't really put a timeline on it other than to say that with time, the grief changes yeah. and maybe softens a bit, but you never stop grieving. Yeah. And of course that first while is the most acute and strongest, but there's just all these things, right? Like the the, the talking about pregnancy or not talking about pregnancy and the, the miles, like, I don't know if, why we do this as humans. I don't know if it's just to make ourselves feel better or what it is, but they're, it's not always super helpful. Mm -hmm. And it, it's almost like a way to not talk about birth and death and grief and miscarriage and all, all of that. That's because when, when I did have my miscarriage and we had followed that rule of thumb, you know, we only told our parents. It wasn't like I didn't tell my friends mm. I was having a miss. I did. And they came yeah. and they were with me. And I think it was from that point forward, I thought, I'm not going to do the 12 week. Don't tell anybody. Like every single pregnancy I want to, you know, celebrate and acknowledge. And yeah, it's like, don't tell people you're married because half of marriages <laughs> end in divorce. So yeah, you never know. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's this very fatalistic, like don't acknowledge something that yeah it's just it's very strange and so ever since then with both pregnancies i've been i've said when i'm pregnant because yeah i was and it's just it's important that we talk about things and when you said if there's one thing in life you were going to do is grieve well as someone on the outside looking in and i met you after all of that after evelyn and dan's births mm -hmm. dan, dan was born after violet even in getting to know you in person on social media i saw that i saw you you taught me and so many others how to grieve well that you do and that you can and do talk about the person who died and celebrate her and her life and who she was and what she means to you and pictures as you're comfortable you should mm -hmm. never do anything you know no one should do something they're not comfortable with when it comes to that but as i've seen you share those things in such a vulnerable space it's you've you've normalized so much of talking about things that a lot of people are uncomfortable talking about well thank you yeah i appreciate I that feel like necessity and it still does and i look forward to us helping others through grief through carding an academy now i think that's a way we watch this is us mm -hmm. and they had a pregnancy with triplets and one of the triplets dies and dr k says you've been handed life's worst lemons mm -hmm. and something about if you leave the hospital today and make meaning from that loss then you will be turning the worst possible lemons into lemonade. Oh gosh, watching that five, I think years later. <sighs> I know I have chills just listening to you. I remember thinking as I was watching it, like, oh, is Devin watching this? Oh my gosh. Cause we didn't know going in, it looked like it might be heavy, but yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, and I didn't watch it right away. I watched it a little bit later. I'm so glad I did. I think they handle a lot of really difficult topics really well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was like I always say, I'm still mothering all three of them. We got pregnant with Daniel in April and my wonderful OBGYN had said after a C-section, you should wait nine months to heal. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> I remember calling her and being like, oh, I'm so sorry. She's like, no, this happened when it was supposed to happen. And I very much believe that as difficult as that pregnancy was then, he was born a year and a month to the day after Violet died. Mm-hmm. So that does contribute a little bit to that time being very much a blur. Mm-hmm. And I was very grateful that he was a boy because I was able to separate, as much as mm-hmm. I wanted Evelyn to have a sister, I was able to separate the pregnancies in that regard a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there was decisions to be made about, do you want to be in the same hospital room? Some people do, some people don't. Oh, wow. All the anniversaries, you know, and he was a very needy baby. And I remember it triggered a lot of my PTSD. I'll talk about that at some point, I'm sure. But I didn't have a choice. I was going to have to love on this baby with all the love that I wanted to give his sister and him as an individual. And and we got very, very close. And so the first two years for her birthday and the anniversary of her death, we had um, random act of kindness cards printed up. And they're on my website, Still Playing School, that people can do a random act of kindness in her memory on November 2nd or any time. A lot of times people will do it on the 2nd and then I think the 4th is just as hard. I don't care. (laughs) The world needs more kindness. And if she's your inspiration for that, that's wonderful. But I remember having something planned for her birthday then and then the anniversary of her death being super hard because I'll never forget that first year I was giving Evelyn a bath at 7.30 at night when Violet was pronounced dead one year late. And I was thinking, how can I possibly be given, mm-hmm. you know? And then the next year, I remember that week answering emails and grocery shopping and thinking like, this is ridiculous. And so the following year, we went to Disney and I, that was the wish I had always made on every birthday candle I ever blew out when I was a kid. I want to go to Disney, every shooting star. And I never got there. And so it would have been the year she would have been three because Daniel was not quite two. And we went, and ever since then, the reason I'm bringing it up is because we try to block out those dates now. Sometimes we go away, pre-pandemic we often did. I just said to my family, I'm going to look at her picture. Like, we usually look through all her pictures and videos, and writing the memoir feels like honoring that in a different way in this podcast episode. So, yeah, 10 years out. Yeah. I'm hearing so much in all of this about just the humanity of it all, the humanity of the pregnancy, the humanity of the grief, the humanity of your relationship with her, the humanity of her relationship with her siblings, with Rob. And I was thinking, even as you talked about This Is Us and Dr. K, because you and I have talked about this a lot together, this story about the nurse and how you felt comfortable with her. And when you said a lot of times in medicine and in healthcare, there's this idea of like, you don't talk about personal things and Ah, I think that needs to change personally. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I think if they understood the model that you always talk about, um, the circles of support that was in the New York Times years ago about how to process your grief without dumping on the person who's, you know, at the, at the center of right. what's going on. As long as that's in place, 
And as long as certain boundaries, I guess, are not crossed, like the, the doctor, the nurse, the counselor, the therapist, the professor, whoever is not emotionally leaning too much on the patient, the client, as long as that's not happening, I personally love the humanity of hearing a little bit more about who you are as a person. I, I think we need more of that in healthcare and in all areas of life. I just, just like you, we've talked about this so many times. I connect with that. I, I it, it means something to have that connection and that again, humanity in that relationship when you're going through something, because that's, that's part of the support and that's part of the healing. So thank you for sharing with me, with your friends, your family, the world, for sharing Violet, for sharing the humanity of the entire experience of being her mom and sharing her life with us and who she is. She just feels very present to me always. Mm -hmm. I think about her. I feel like I know her. I see her. Mm -hmm. I, I just, you have absolutely kept her front and center as part of the fabric of your family and life. And, and, and you haven't kept it to yourself. You've shared it with us in the world, which I know is a really, really vulnerable place to be and thing to share. And there might be risk inherent in that in a negative way, but also in such a positive way. And, and it's hard to not see anything but positive in the people that you reach. And as you reach them, Violet reaches them. Thank you. I hear from a lot of people what you're describing about her feeling present. And so I just, I want to thank her and tell her my baby and also this beautiful 10-year-old girl that I can picture. Just happy birthday. If you're interested in learning more about parenting, education, and mental health from our therapist teacher team, check us out at cardiganacademy.com. And we are also on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube.